Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Ryan Hardy is the chef and owner of three of New York City's highest regarded restaurants, Charlie Bird, Pasquale Jones, and Legacy Records. He's also passionate about well-being, and get this everyone, what he's doing with bread is so remarkable that he's even influenced our mutual friend, Dr. Frank Lippman, and his view on gluten. Not so bad, guys. He is a true innovator in the restaurant world, and today he's going to get us to love bread and share some of his pro tips on seasonal veggies, delicious and healthy wine, and something we all love here at My Buddy Green, olive oil. Ryan, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. It is so great to have you here. We are a huge fan of all of your restaurants in New York. So guys, you're in town. Check them all out. (laughs) Thank you. So what most people don't know is you have a, a personal wellness journey. And let's let's yeah. start there. Yeah, I, um, gosh, you know, I think that uh, uh, food has always been a really important part of my life. Um, I started uh, as as a young man. I've always been a, a healthy individual. I never suffered from uh, from any major illnesses. Um, maybe it's the first place to start. Um, so, but food became a really important part of um, of development for me. I grew up the youngest of five kids in Kentucky. And uh, we had a garden. We had um, some pretty, uh, you know, stiff chores that we had to, you know, uh, work through as we as we grew up. And, and those taught us discipline, of course, but it really taught us the value of food. And, and at least for me, it did. And as uh, my mother and father both were good cooks, and, and dinner time was an important thing, you know, for us to, to be um, there for meals and to learn, you know, how to sit through meals, things you loved, things you didn't. But I was always a good eater, and I never never shied away. Um, and, it, and something occurred to me as I went to college, I went to Xavier University in Cincinnati, and um, I went away and, and, and all these students came from all over the place, um, from Seattle, um, from Texas, from California, from uh, New York, uh, you know, all over. And when I started to meet these people and, and, and have conversations with them about where they were from and, and, and whatnot, inevitably people um, brought food that the parents had sent them or, or we got together in the cafeteria and, and people, you know, it always comes back. That's, that's how you socialize, right? Um, and I was amazed that all of these people had such similar um, dishes, such similar things uh, that they brought to the table that their parents made, and and, and I thought that that the dishes that were from my family were very unique, right? We we weren't we're very American. We weren't um, immigrants uh, uh, any time removed. We were several several times removed. We were we were decidedly American family, and um, and so we didn't have you know traditions like pastas and and um, uh, special things that we had at the holidays that were anything but what I knew, right? And. And when I met these kids, suddenly I recognized that people from Seattle and Texas and California, whatever, had these exact same things. They had the same casserole dishes or these, you know, um, uh, whatnot in, in their homes as well. And, and I felt a little depressed, <laughs> honestly, uh, because of that. I thought, wow, here, it still didn't take away from the special nature that my family had. But, I, but, it, but it, suddenly it kind of forced me to ask why. How, how did you grow up so far away in a place that I've never heard of? And yet you grew up in a very similar situation than, than I did in terms of what was on the dinner table. And, um, and as I started to dig some of those um, uh, maybe questions, 
I started to really develop a, a love for anthropology and, and for history. Um, I ended up studying business, but but one of the things that I that I loved throughout um, school and, and then beyond that was to really ask those questions and, and to look at, at where does food come from, um, where do these traditions come from, and why? how do we become such a um, kind of uh, washed out uh, country in terms of our food traditions. And, and I found myself craving as I started to travel some of the other food traditions that were around in the world and, and why didn't those exist in in the area where I grew up, why didn't they exist in other places like these Texas and Seattle and, you know, et cetera. And we've become, you know, fast forward 30 years more, we've become much more regionalistic in our own country and people have started to celebrate, you know, places like Austin, Texas or, or you know, um, L.A. or San Francisco, of course, or, or Atlanta has a great food scene, places in, you know, Florida, Carolinas, you know, et cetera. But, but back then, a lot of this was really washed out. And so some of the research that I, that I did and, and people that I worked for, I, I started to, to recognize that um, there was a pretty major change that happened post-World War II in, in, in the United States and really specifically in the 1950s. And so much of the Industrial Revolution really led us in the early part of the century towards mass-produced foods in our country, um, mass-produced ingredients, monocropping, of course. Um, the Betty Crocker cookbook was written and, uh, and, and cherished, right? And so many people took that and, and those canned foods and those frozen foods and those kind of processed, you know, early processed stuff, and they were innocent enough, and applied that to the dinner table everywhere. And, man, that did not sound good to me. <laughs> so even though I was brought up on that stuff, I really started to search out and, and, and look at for a personal journey. And then it wasn't until... That was early years of college, and it wasn't until I came home uh, from college, um, maybe I was a sophomore or junior maybe, in college, and, and I came home, and I, my mom and I loved to stay up late. You know, we'd, we'd open a bottle of wine, have a glass of wine together, and stay up late, look through photo albums, and just talk. She's a, she's a night owl. And um, we were going through an old photo album, and I turned the page, and um, my grandfather died. Her father died before I was born. And I, I pointed at the picture. I said, Man, is that is that Granddad? You know, she said, Yeah, yeah, that's that's your, that's your grandfather. That's that's Tom. And and um, I said, what, What's he doing? Like, what is this? And she goes, Oh, that was our dairy store. I said, What? A dairy store? And she said, Yeah. Well, I, of course, I grew up on the dairy farm. I said, Mom, I'm I don't know, I'm 22 years old. I never heard that you grew up on a dairy farm. Like, so it, it something clicked with me in that moment, and and my food career was born. Like, I knew after that photograph that. That I had to search out the things that were lost, and 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 I'm to, even today I'm obsessed with other cultures. I'm obsessed with languages. I'm obsessed with with kind of the history of food, as a um, as a language of people going kind of going forward, and and how those um, relationships get to where we are today, and how easily they're lost. One generation, if you don't speak, if you're if you speak Italian, and you don't teach your children that, it's gone. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and food is the same way. It's so interesting because I would say, I, I know there's no typical profile of a chef, but I would say anthropology, business, Xavier University, Kentucky, like yeah, it is yeah. a unique profile. <laughs> you know, it is. Um, I, I, it's interesting. My father um, was a marketing director. He was a vice president of marketing for a company, and, and um, it was a food, food company. And, um, and so we were around food frequently, but it was always fast food. And... Um, uh, I, of course, you crave that kind of stuff when you're a kid. So I always loved it, but but we were limited. We didn't we didn't 
intentionally my, my parents wouldn't feed us that kind of food very often because it was a treat and that was it was important and um but I was always around kitchens, you know, because my dad would say, oh, here, let's go see the new concept that we're working on. Or, oh, we're, we're going to be driving through, you know, northern Kentucky or we're driving through St. Louis and we'll work, let's check out one of the things that my company's working on, you know, those types of things. And so as an early age, I actually, you know, people would say, oh, I want to be a fireman. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a doctor or whatever it was. And, and I always said, oh, I want to be a five-star chef. Like that was the thing. <laughs> I was a kid and, and I was saying these things. It was kind of my thing. And so I never really believed that that would be true as I started school. I didn't go to school specifically for that. I, I just happened to love food through the, through the path. And I, I wouldn't even call myself a foodie or even somebody who cooked a lot necessarily. I was the kid in the dorm room with like the George Foreman grill kind of thing, like making, <laughs> you know, grilled cheese, but the grilled cheese were really good, you know? And, um, uh, it wasn't until I left college and, and started, um, interviewing. I, I, I graduated with an accounting degree and started interviewing and I was, I was real, I was literally the only hippie in, um, the accounting class. All Everybody amazing else, skills to yeah. have as a restaurateur <laughs> exactly. and entrepreneur. I know. Right. And, um, I, uh, I, w I would wear like uh, corduroys and, and tie-dyed t-shirts and my hair was long and I'd look around and I remember one day in, in one of my senior uh, tax accounting classes, I looked around and every single person in there had a suit on because they were going from there to their, you know, their internship or their job or whatever. I looked around and I said, either I'm not working hard enough or this is not where I should be. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I kind of said, I need, I'm going to finish this out and then, and then find what's next for me. And so... I left college, uh, or after I should say, I left uh, the Midwest and moved to, to the West Coast and um, um, had, had a, a, a bit of a tough time um, in my life. I think I needed to, you know, speaking of, of wellness and whatnot, I, I, um, I needed to find myself and I ended up homeless actually for, for a period of time where I needed to um, really locate where my heart was, you know, and understand what is it that I wanted to do. and. It's, it's interesting how um, I was always very mentally stable. Fortunately, I know that goes hand in hand with homelessness often, sure. but I found myself homeless in, in Washington State because I, I, I didn't have any money. I was naive enough um, to just go and think, I'll just get a job and you know get an apartment and, and take off because that's what I had always done. And, and suddenly it's, it's, it's very quick when you don't have money to pay rent and you can't get a place to live and suddenly you go, well, I'll just live in my car for a day or two and, or I'll live in the tent cause the weather's nice. And if anybody out there is listening that has been to Washington state, it's nice for about 42 days a year. And, then, <laughs> and the other 290 days are gorgeous, but, but raining. And, um, uh, so that was a difficult period, but, but it taught me a lot about the value of food and about the value of, um, um, health and wellness and about, um, being able to, to really get through anything uh, in life. And so it was about, um, I don't know, maybe 75 days or 80 days where I literally didn't have a home. And, uh, and I would, you know, I, I was doing anything I could for work. Uh, work was very, very uh, uh, slim back then. The economy was not great uh, at that period. And um, in Washington state at least. And, uh, and then I really considered, man, I really need to reconsider. I, I moved out there to go to graduate school and, um, uh, I figured I would get settled. Get uh, they have a, a deal in Washington State and Oregon State where if you if you get residency for a year, you can go in-state tuition to those those universities. I hadn't even applied yet. I mean, I was I was I was naive enough to uh, to to try and do this, but but um, but I, I couldn't see it through. And and so I, I took this you know on as a 
this is a good thing for me. I needed to kind of go through the mental side of, of what that is. And so you harvest blackberries, which grow everywhere out there. You harvest apples, which grow everywhere out there. You go to the food banks. You kind of see the food that that comes and and and, and is is basically wasted by the supermarkets and the local thing, and local food co-ops and whatnot. And that was kind of surprising to me. And 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 so I think particularly the conservation end of it was was really burned into me, you know, through that time of there has to be a better way. There has to be a better food system that's out there. And, and we have to be able to nourish ourselves in a, in a, in a healthier way than, than kind of the fast food way that I would, grew up with, the kind of the Betty Crocker era sure. that, that it came out of, and then where we were headed as kind of a modern society. So let's go back for a moment. <laughs> I had no idea you were homeless for a brief period. In that, I'm curious, did you ask for help? Did you talk to your parents or you didn't, or you just... No, I didn't. Um, I I really went off the grid. I mean, uh, clearly, this is before cell phones, of course. And so um, this would have been in um, the late 90s. Sure. And I, um, I needed to get away. I needed to kind of find myself. I needed to escape my family and, and uh, the things that I kind of grew up doing. And, sure. And... Um, I very much wanted to find my myself. Um, I think I was disillusioned a little bit in my youth that um, people were all from somewhere, and I wasn't. Do you know what I mean? Sure, people were, of course. Oh, I'm I'm from New York, and and I go to school here now, or I live here now, but but I have a real connection with New York, and or I am a, an immigrant, I'm Irish immigrant, or I'm German, or I, you know, root for this or this, this. And I, I didn't have that, or at least I didn't perceive that I had that. And I, I, my mother happens to be a fan of genealogy and, and had done research and was very proud of the fact that, that both of our sides of the family had gone back, you know, through the Civil War and into the earlier parts of, of settling America, I should say the United States. And, um, uh, and that's interesting, but to somebody who's younger, that's not that interesting. You know, you 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 hear of all these other cultures and and I think all these things in the world, places that you want to experience and go to. And and for me, um, my parents were amazing um, uh, through parts of my life and and really taught us, um, um, I think, a lot by by doing. Right. So we. It was a different era. You you could only drive places, right? You know, sure. Flying was very expensive, yes. especially when you have five kids. And so, we had a six-hour radius. If we could drive there within six hours, we could frequent that kind of a place: St. Louis, Chicago, Atlanta, those types of places. We had family and kind of across the Midwest. And um, and so, you know, I think for me, I needed to to get away from from that and kind of understand who who am I and and why and. And I didn't intend to end up homeless or, or intend to end up um, uh, in kind of a derelict part of life. I think I think that I needed to go through that to come out the other side. Sure. And um, uh, I went there, tried to get a, a room, tried to rent an apartment, didn't have enough money, tried to, tried to um, uh, find odd jobs. It was not that easy. Um, I was a well-educated kid, but I couldn't get a professional job. I couldn't get a, a, a you know, those kind of, sure. you know, I was trying to get home building jobs. I was trying to do just about anything I could with my hands. Um, and I ended up, um, oddly enough, finishing my college years by becoming a, first a busser, you know, a dishwasher, a you know, server. Then the fry cook was you know, thrown in the jail one night or whatever. And so I became a fry cook and, and at this little restaurant in Kentucky. And so I ended up putting myself through the end of college, um, um, obviously with the help of my parents, uh, uh, by cooking. And... So I reverted back to that when I was in Washington State. It was like that was kind of the thing that I could wait tables, 
and work in a kitchen, like anyone would hire you if, if you could do that. And and so there was some comfort in that, and there was I think there was some success in that. As I as I kind of started my professional career, I kept going back to that and turning back to the idea of I'm good at this and I like this. And um, after I got on my feet in in Washington, I moved to San Francisco. Also very naively, also with almost no money. Go to a tougher city. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, and tougher, uh, more expensive. Exactly. I went there and lived in a hostel for for a little while until I could uh, get an apartment. And somebody took pity on me and said, "We'll rent you an apartment. How much money do you have?" Which I'll, I'll never forget. Those the, the two men that owned that building it was really incredible. Um, and um, and then moved to San Francisco and enrolled in culinary school. Um, figured I'd give it a shot, and, and I worked in every kitchen, every job I could find in the city, and and uh, and and really, then it started to come together for me. This this idea, the passion, really was ignited at that point. Where not just being a chef, but I think food and traditions, and San Francisco is so filled. I mean, this is just this is the place where the espresso machine, you know, first appeared in sure. in, in the United States, and um, the docks are there, and and um, uh, of course the prison off the coast was fascinating so it had it had anthropological you know um, effect on me of course it, it uh, was this hilly city in a place where I'd never been it was as beautiful or more than anything I had imagined and uh, I knew nothing about the city when I moved there <laughs> in 1998 or, or yeah, I think it was 1998 um, which was really incredible and so you are in, look, it's tough being an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And if I were to pick an industry that is probably, is notoriously one of the toughest, it is the restaurant industry. Yeah. And you are clearly successful. Um, but it sounds like if I, these early tough experiences, it sounds like played a huge role in, yeah. in developing the quote unquote muscles you needed <laughs> to make it. In in a an industry where, where no every day there's someone going, especially in New York with yeah. leases and, and oh, labor and, and I, I I know I I think that um, I think that you to become an entrepreneur I I, I I should back up I I became very close with one of my um, uh, investors early on before I moved to New York City um, um, was a guy that. Um, who was looking to do a farm. He was looking to invest in land and, and his name is Mike Waters and uh, Mike, if you're out there, if you ever hear this, um, I'm still a big fan of yours. <laughs> and um, uh, Mike had been a, kind of a serial entrepreneur in his own words and had started a bunch of businesses and sold them off and had, had done some really cool work um, uh, in the, the world of animals. Um, done the invisible fence and the self-cleaning litter box and that kind of stuff. He'd kind of invented some of these technologies. And so he was a, he was a tinkerer. He was an engineer and, and, um, and we went into business together and started an organic farm in Colorado. And not even knowing it, we started this thing and we you know, working on it together. And, and you know, we just we literally bought some property, had an old house on it. We bought a tiller and showed up the first day and was like, okay, we're going to rip this up and we're going to start planting things. <laughs> and I, because I'm my business background, I'd written this whole business plan for it. And here's the financial model and, and here's how we're going to do it. And here's what we're going to grow. And here's the projections and, you know, et cetera. And, uh, and then I had to actually do it. And um, I asked Mike a question one day, you know, particularly busy day, and we were out to dinner together with he and his wife and Hattie. And, and, uh, and I said, you know, can I ask you a question? How do you, how do you become an entrepreneur? 
and he, he just smiled at me and he said, what do you mean? I said, how do you, I mean, I can, I can write the models, I can write the business, I, I understand what it means. I don't know how you do it. And he just laughed and he said, you, you just do it. And, you just, you, you, and by the way, you've already done it. You know, we started the farm, you're an entrepreneur. And, and that also unlocked something in me that you just, the way to do it is just get started. You just, sure. you, today's the day, you just do it. And so you open a bank account and you, you know, put a hundred dollars in it, whatever it is. And, and you get going. And so that was a, that was a moment where I, um, uh, I gained confidence and, and I don't, I think that's an underrated moment in, uh, in business where you, every business, no matter how big it is, it's Apple, it's IBM, you know, et cetera, started with a moment. There was some section in somebody's brain that clicked and said, sure. Oh, I can, I can fire this up in a, in a garage. And so that was my moment, you know, I was like, Oh, okay, I can do this. And, um, and so I've been homeless. Think, if it fails, not so bad. I can do this. this is exactly. And that's where I was going with it was that, that idea of when you've, when you've had nothing, you're not afraid yeah. of, of having nothing again. And, and now I have children. It's a little different. <laughs> 100%. 100%. So we got introduced through our, our mutual dear friend, Dr. Frank Lipman. And Frank said yeah. to me, he said, you got to meet this guy. I can't do Frank's accent. Sorry, guys. You know, but you got to meet this guy, Ryan Hardy. He's so cool. His, you know, he's like he's the guy behind Legacy Records and Pascali Jones and Charlie Brown. I'm like, I love all those restaurants. Yeah, I'm like, great. I didn't Thank know you. he's he's in. You know, he's into yeah, this. And, yeah. and Frank's like, yeah, he's in. And and, and words I never thought I'd hear from Frank's mouth because he's <laughs> he's so uh, he, he he's he's staunchly opposed to, to gluten. He's, yeah, he's yeah, changed exactly. my views on gluten. I'm like, whoa! Now I, know, right? now I, I have, have to hear it. To yeah. talk to this yeah, guy, right? So let's talk about, you know, first of all, like you're, you know, meeting Frank, bonding with yeah. Frank and your views on Western and, and, and just wellness. And then let's start, start to talk about gluten and yeah. dough and what you're doing there that, right. that, that you'll be the guy who changed Frank Littman's <laughs> view on gluten. Well, first of all, I'm not a doctor. Um, that's that maybe should be said at the outset. This is well. You know how many people aren't doctors in, in the world of wellness, <laughs> For sure. prescribing yeah, exactly. information yeah. every day. Yeah. So you're on the podcast. Go right. ahead. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have a voice. Um, well, I think that that to, to kind of start, um, you heard my my journey kind of through history and yes. my childhood and whatnot. And 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 as I uh, as I progressed uh, to be an adult. Um, uh, I've been very fortunate in my family. We haven't had any major health issues, uh, um, to say, um, as a child. And, and as, as I uh, got a little older, my sister, um, developed cancer and, and, uh, has done very well battling that. And it kind of made me question some things in my own life about health and wellness and, and understanding that most of what we do in Western medicine is, um, reactive. You have some symptoms, nobody can explain. They run some deeper tests. It throws up some flags, they run some more tests, and they go, oh, by the way, you have cancer. <laughs> and and it, I, that doesn't sit well with me. I'm, once again, I really like to ask why, and I like to dig uh, in some of these questions. And, and I feel like um, we need to do a better job of it. And it's not just preventative. I think you have to really um, look at, uh, at taking care of yourself, asking a lot of questions about yourself, um, uh, pushing, you know, doctors, whether they're on the Eastern side of medicine or kind of Western side of medicine to, um, to look a little bit, um, deeper into some of the things that you may be feeling that you can't quite explain. And, and I can, I can tell you that now I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old and, and, um, 
before they could really speak, when you have children, you're, you're constantly trying to figure out what the heck's wrong with them, right? <laughs> and they can't communicate back to you. And so recently I was at the doctor just for an kind of annual checkup. And, uh, and I recognized that, oh, doctors are just, you can speak, but they don't actually know what's wrong with you until you, <laughs> until you can kind of get to that point where you can, you know, you can really show them or they can see it on a monitor someplace. So I, I searched out um, um, Dr. Littman because um, uh, my wife and, and one of her very good friends uh, were going to see him on a, on a, on a you know, biannual basis. And, and the best way I can describe Dr. Littman, for those of you who, who haven't listened to him on the podcast already, you should definitely do so after listening to this one, <laughs> um, is I call him, I tease him about this, I say he's a, he's a blood doctor. He's a, that, that's really putting it very bluntly. Um, he's, he's so much more than that. But... Um, for those of you who don't know him, he's an acupuncturist. He, he studies Eastern medicine. He really looks at the diet as a way to heal. And, and then and if you have something that's, that's stronger than that, he, you know, then can kind of take it further. But, um, but I say he's a blood doctor because one of the ways he, he does an analysis is he meets you and he talks to you about your lifestyle and your diet and, and very normal things. And he's, he puts you at ease right away. And then he, he takes a massive amount of your blood. <laughs> <laughs> I did not realize it the first time. And they run all kinds of, uh, of um, analysis on that to, to really get a great snapshot of your health right now. And, and I've been to the doctor my whole life, right? I mean, I'm a healthy individual. I don't go off and I only go when I need something. But I've never had a doctor do that before. And, and, and when you sit down and you really look at, at all of these things, and what do they mean? Well, this is, this is a snapshot of you. This is it. This is, the, this is the blueprint of who you are is right there in your blood. And... and um, I was fortunate that I'm in good health and, and he gave me some advice and, and whatnot on blood sugars and, and understanding um, the, the power of um, sugars in our blood and, um, and how that drives and works hand in hand with cholesterol and those types of things. And I'm not necessarily fighting any particular thing, but, but it got us talking and the two of us were really interested in talking to each other about about food and and um, um, Dr. Lipman had done quite a bit of work with David Boulay, the famous chef in New York sure. City, who, who I adore and, and uh, think very highly of. And he said, "You know, I know you're opening a new restaurant. Maybe we should we should get together. I'll, I'll come in for dinner sometime and, and check it out, and, and we'll talk more." And so um, uh, he came by, and um, uh, we we were eating, and someone at the table was having bread. And he goes, "That that bread looks really good," you know, kind of thing. He said, "You know, I don't I don't subscribe to bread, as you know. I, I think it, it's 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 really can be terrible for us um, in terms of many <laughs> things." And um, and it's by the way, it's not like an Atkins kind of thing. It's not about weight loss or weight gain or whatever. It's really about understanding uh, blood sugar levels and and sure. and uh, and how to monitor your 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 body and. Uh, and he said, but I'm, I'm going to try that bread. <laughs> and I said, great, please, please do. Uh, and, and then, I don't know, we probably talked for an hour about bread. And, and I said, well, you know, there were two real moments when we, when we set up legacy records that were important to me and, uh, as a chef side of it. And one of them was um, designing in the kitchen. Um, you have to have a starting point to, as to where to go. And, and then you can kind of design everything else. Some people start with, well, the dish machine has to be over here or the, the wine storage has to be over here or, the, you know, et cetera. And for me, we had to, to, to kind of, we knew where the kitchen appliances kind of had to be. It's, it's quite a large kitchen at Legacy, um, fortunately. And, uh, and for me, I said, okay, well, well it, this is going to be the risotto station because of its proximity. And, and then everything else would fall in place from there. And so the risotto station for me was the central you know, point of the kitchen and, and a very important point. 
And, uh, and the second point was that um, the upstairs area had a, a location where we could do a prep kitchen, we could do offices, we could do you know so many things. And I said, no, this is the opportunity that we have to put in a bakery and to do it right and to do it for all of our restaurants so we can, we can really control the quality of, of what we're serving because there are amazing bakeries in New York City but you don't really know the products that they're using. Um, sure. uh, you know, when are they baking it? When are they delivering it? Most of the bread is left in a bag outside your back door. You know, that kind of stuff. And, and I said, we can do better, you know, with this. And so Frank and I really dove into that. And I said, well, the first thing we did was, what do we want to do? How do we want to produce it? Um, what type of flour do we want to use, right? It's all about the ingredients. Well, you know, you've got flour, yeast, salt, and water. That's, that's it. And, and you can churn out. 75 different types of bread or more just with those four ingredients now that's fascinating yeah. and as a chef um particularly my food you the more you strip away in food and in dishes the harder it is and there's nothing to hide behind and um i think that's always been the signature that I try and put on plates is I try not to overdo it, try not to over, you know, it's not modern food. It's, it's, it's really meant to be vegetable based and, and really um, delicious. That's, that's the name of our company, <laughs> delicious hospitality group. And, but it came back to the bread for me is, is that is the quintessential most basic um, thing that, uh, that we can produce. You cannot hide it. It's either you look at it and you know, it's going to be good before you even taste it. Right. Um, or bad. And, um, and so we did a lot of testing on that. And so we, we were open, in the bakery for about five months before we really started turn out breads that that we loved and and we tweaked a lot of the flowers we worked with with mills from upstate new york we work with a with a mill in idaho uh, we work with uh, a couple of mills in california and um one in vermont um and and then because i like to ask why <laughs> and things i wanted to know a little bit more about um uh some of these processes and and um and I started reading, I'd met um, a couple of years prior as we were opening Pasquale Jones, a doctor by the name of Steve Jones, who um, incidentally works at Washington State University, where it was one of the places um, uh, that I was trying to get uh, into for graduate school all those years ago. And he operates something called the Bread Lab. And, and um, um, I had spoken to him about fermentation and, um, and the effects on flour and the effects on digestion a few years back. And I could kind of dug up those notes and read a few things and, and um, uh, reached out. And, and um, a few things that, that really came back were, were that, of course, the, the power of the flour is, is the most important part of, of bread making, even more than the bread maker themselves. I mean, you can make great bread in an in a, you know, automated uh, bread uh, machine, right? Um, but you had to have great flour to do that. And so much of what was out there commercially available was just garbage and it was treated with lots of chemicals and, and, you know, uh, roundup appears in a lot of flour and, and, um, um, no offense to you if you work for Monsanto, but it's not something that I really want to consume and, uh, and you know, lots of really nasty stuff. And so one of the things that I found really interesting was that, um, uh, around the turn of the century going, kind of going back to my anthropological time, there were, um, I think there were like 20, 22,000 mills in the United States. And um, um, it was a pretty significant number. And now we're down to, there's really the big three wow. <laughs> in the United States that mill. And there's about 200 total that are artisan in, in these different areas. And so 
you really had to search them out. They weren't just common names um, to, 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 to find them. And so the, the two guys that I had in charge of the bakery, I said, guys, let's find some great flour. Let's really do some digging and, and find, um, you know, Centra Milling is a great one. Um, 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 of course, Anson Mills is one that does mostly non-flour, non-wheat usually, but uh, grains and things like that. There were a few famous ones, but let's really dig and find some that are in New York State. Let's find some that, you know, that are certified organic. Let's, let's really dig in. And so that, that's really, I think, where the, the conversation went with Dr. Lipman and I was, was how do you produce great bread that's a long fermentation that comes with great ingredients? And that is really basic, but, um, but it's revolutionary in a way because the product itself is so much better um, than, than, say, just stuff that's, that's churned out with, with you know, more commercially readable or um, commercially viable, maybe, uh, uh, flours. And talk, can you talk, can you talk a little bit about the fermentation process? Yeah, you know, um, the food at, at Legacy is um, um, kind of a, a well, my restaurants are, you know, really Mediterranean inspired, um, really leaning towards my influences on, on from Italy. I spend a lot of time, my wife is Italian, we spend a lot of time in Italy and really love the culture there. Um, and so I'm heavily influenced by that. And, and, and we, we, you know, made Charlie Bird very um, much inspired by that. And then Pasquale Jones became even more so because it was, you know, kind of a fancy pizzeria. Uh, wood roasted food and then and then as we hit legacy records it needed a new voice and so I had to kind of think about what what is what's what's my next book here you know about and and I, I was really fascinated although I haven't been to Japan I was really fascinated by the culture of the Japanese and, and the cuisine of the Japanese like like most chefs are and um, and I started to realize that that um, there's n- really no two cuisines that are more similar than Italian and Japanese and they sound completely opposite mm. But when you really look at at the two cuisines in general, um, they both um, have a huge amount of their population is fed off seafood and the coastline that's around it. Italy is almost an island. <laughs> it's a yeah. long peninsula. Of course, Japan is uh, one big long island in a similar shape. Both have um, uh, climates that, that range from incredible skiing you know, to great seaside towns um, and, and all the things that grow in between, mushrooms and you know, all kinds of cool stuff that, that uh, exists there. Um, both cultures have a propensity to, to, to love rice. Once again, my risotto station, middle of kitchen there, um, maybe a bit more in, in Japan, but, but sticky rice was, was grown in Italy and it was, you know, grown in Japan. It was a really big kind of connection. And then fast food to the, both of them is noodles. Mm-hmm. If you really look at ramen is the basic food of, of the Japanese, what they eat every single day. And, and in Italy, they eat pasta every single day. And so the, the the kind of the next step, the one that connected it all, was fermented foods. It was this this thing that came together that the Japanese love fermented fruits and and of course fermented fish and and um, uh, so so much of their culture and their umami comes from things that are a little bit fermented. And the same thing happens in Italy. It's just maybe less known. Um, we ferment chilies there. With you know, put salt in it, leave it in a bucket for seventy two days, and and you get fermented uh, stuff. They, they make uh, um, uh, anchovy sauce and you know those types of things called a tour. Uh, there's the basis of most of the Italian cuisine is either drunk in a wine glass as fermented food, or it's it's eaten on a plate that has some sort of fermented uh, product that that goes with it, alongside it, or in it. And um, um, so I became kind of fascinated with that. And so with bread, it was it was an easy extension to kind of take it you know, in that same vein and to say, all right. Let's think of bread as not just bread itself, but but a fermentation process. And what does that do? How long can we ferment it? What does that do to the flavor profile that's there? What does it do to that di- di- digestive quality um, for us as human beings? 
and it's it's not rocket science when you start looking at cheese um, products and and uh, and the ability to to consume dairy and digest dairy, um, and the ability to digest um, glutens and and, um, and and in this case breads, or pastas, which by the way is a pretty significant part of my menus sure. <laughs> at all three sure. restaurants. And so I'm, I am interested in 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 what's the health and wealth of these things and their future in our diet because I'm. I'm putting businesses together that are based upon them. Um, and so it, it really started with pizza and, and understanding um, uh, how do you eat pizza and feel good and not have that kind of that bloat and that belly. And um, um, that's, that's the, the question. question. That's the question, right? <laughs> so I, I had a, another experience a few years prior, um, early in my career, and um, I was the chef of a little place on, on Martha's Vineyard called the coach house and it looked out over the lighthouse. It was very bucolic. It was beautiful. And, and, um, that's really where I fell in love with organic farming and, and, uh, so much of the kind of the pastoral uh, life happened there. And, and, um, it was a restaurant group in New York city uh, run by Drew Nieper and Michael Bonadies, um, um, two of my early mentors. And, um, and Drew came up, Drew doesn't, doesn't fly very often and he doesn't drive and you know, whatnot. Just walks so, around, drive back. <laughs> pretty much. And uh, he came up and kind of gave me an analysis and, and, uh, of, of how I was doing up there. And he had a meal, and then the next morning we met for coffee. And he said, he said you know, last night was really great, you know, great job, great job on the food. He said, but the bigger component uh, of this is that I feel great today. And, and I, I looked at him, I was like, what? You know, here I'm this, I don't know, I must have been like 26 years old, 27 years old. And, and I kind of looked sideways at him. He's like, well, that's a, that's a big part of the meal is how you feel the next day. You know, did you digest it? Do you feel good? Do you feel terrible? You know, et cetera. And man, that, that blew me away. He said it so casually, but it, it literally changed the way that I thought about my food, the experience that I had with the guest. Um, you know, it's a very intimate thing to feed someone and, and to prepare food for them that they're going to ingest in their body. And uh, they have to have a lot of trust and faith in you to, to do something that's going to make them feel well. And I never thought about that. In, early on in your career as a chef, you're, it's very ego-driven. You, it's like, you know, it's look at my art, if you will, or look at my... my uh, um, my projects <laughs> on a plate and I hadn't thought of it as a health thing and um, uh, you know kind of fast forward to pizza um, for me I really thought a lot about places that I had eaten pizza and felt terrible the next day <laughs> and there were, there were a couple of my really favorite pizzerias in New York City who I just loved to eat at and every time I did I felt terrible the next day and 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 even though I, I don't consider myself somebody who, who necessarily suffers with with a, a digestion you know GI issue uh, with with regards to gluten and whatnot um, I felt terrible you know and I was like man this is, this is like wheat belly is pretty bad and, and I think I think people were, were really starting to write about it in those you know kind of early 2000s uh, mid 2000s and and um, uh, and so that became an interesting point to me and, and through doing a bunch of research and, and kind of understanding what happens to, to the molecules in, in bread and, and um, these kind of protein chains and, and glutinous chains, um, I started to realize that, that hydration means a lot, um, salt level means a lot, of course, and, and then um, this kind of microbial activity means a lot as it starts to kind of pre-digest some of these um, and denature some of these protein molecules that are, that are in there. And, and the longer we went with fermentation, um, it changed the pizza dramatically. It changed the sugars in the pizza. Um, it changed the way the pizza cooked. It changed the, the, the rise. It changed the, the texture of the dough when you, ate, when you eat it. It was chewy, chewier, chewiest. It kind of just kept going down the spectrum there. And so we took it really far and then dialed it back and found that that 72 hours was a, was a really long fermentation period. And most of what you see in pizza is 
six hours, wow. 12 so hours, like 24 maybe. You're like six to 12 X the, yeah. the standard. Yeah, um, a lot of people will make pizza dough in the morning, you know, um, ball it up, you know, let it kind of um, bulk proof for two hours and then ball it up and then use it for dinner service that night. And I think places who are very, very busy and don't have storage, don't have the ability to, to really bulk ferment doughs and, and whatnot, that's that's the only option they have. They, they don't have another way to do it. And um, uh, we became mildly obsessed with, with understanding all of those details along the way and, and really dialing it down to, to exact percentages and whatnot. So my chef team over there, Tim Kaspar, is the, uh, the chef at, at Pasquale Jones, just crushes it and 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 we're constantly analyzing the dough itself to understand what that what that feels like tastes like is it does it have enough fermentation does it have enough flavor in it how does it react you eat a pizza how do you feel the next morning sure. we, we kind of we, we swap notes on it so then, oh, sorry go ahead. yeah no i was just gonna say and then we took we took that forward to to kind of the fermentation um process as we as we built the bakery and kind of, kind of understanding it so i took one of my guys out of pasquale jones and said great you're gonna cook bread for the next <laughs> few years and um, Claudio does a does a really great job uh, as our kind of our head baker at, at Legacy and, and understanding what are the things we learn from pizza and then apply that forward to to making the different breads that we make. So, so it's, it's the holidays, holidays and we may have some people listening who are yeah. like, you know what, I'm making some bread. So what are your tips for anyone looking to make bread at home beyond extending fermentation, like just some general tips without giving away all your secrets? Yeah, no, I think start with good flour. I think um, it's a great thing. Um, um, whole wheat flour is really important. I think there's there's two different styles of flour that's out there. Whole wheat, if if I say that to most people, they think, oh, the brown flour. Um, um, that's true, um, but but there's also whole wheat flour, which which is actually um, kind of white as well, and and uh, maybe doesn't give you quite the nutty flavor, and and um, um, has maybe the elasticity that you might be looking for. But start with good flour. Um, King Arthur makes great flour. Buy their stuff. It's organic. Um, it has the protein listed right on there. Buy a bag of their bread flour. Um, you can't go wrong with it, whether you're making pizza or whether you're going to make um, uh, a loaf of bread. Um, bread is not, um, it doesn't have to be high art. I think it can be high art, but I think it doesn't have to be. And so if you mix together um, uh, a, a bread recipe, um, put it in your fridge, let it sit overnight, you know, knead it again, let it sit again overnight, and and then pull it out and work with it. So give it a couple of days. Um, and even if it looks like it's not doing anything, it is. And I think that's... <laughs> That's maybe the best way. Your, your flavor development, um, uh, ultimately, the the, um, the texture will change dramatically as it as it uh, proofs and, and bakes. Um, you know, you can get into the should I throw water in the oven? Should I bake it sure. in a cast iron pan? You know, all those things. You know, don't get into the semantics too much. Let's start with great flour and, and great fermentation first, and, and then see where it goes. And you'll, you'll feel, feel better, better the next day. <laughs> you will, I promise. So, so how, how would you, you describe? describe your food philosophy and, and also something we, we you talked about when we spoke on the phone was this idea of the power of a meal. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the, the putting, putting a, a sentence together for food philosophy is hard. You know, I think um, maybe the best way I can describe it is, is I think of myself as a chef but I think of myself as somebody who's who's a great assembler of nature. Um, I love I, that. I really try and put together ingredients that are at their peak, that are at their best. I really live by the philosophy of what grows together goes together. And um, sometimes that's part of the seasonality thing. So something could grow, you know, in this part of the world, in this part of the world, and you kind of, you know, you know hopefully you're going to get something local that kind of ties it all together. But I but I really um, think of myself as a great assembler. I, I, I'm 
unbelievably fascinated and obsessed with olive oils. And so I try and, and bring together these olive oils that that will accent the food and make the food taste great. But the olive oil on it in and of itself is not great unless you have great bread to have it with. Or in olive oil is huge right now. It's, it's having a moment. In the, Finally. In the nutrition wars right now, vegan, yeah. paleo, what have you, keto, yeah. everyone yeah. agrees on olive oil for the most part. Thank God. Um, anyway, I'll never give up butter, but, but I still, <laughs> olive oil is my guy. So, um, so like sourcing great olive oils, sourcing great vegetables, sourcing, you know, less meat, um, I love meat. I, I love a great steak. I, I'm, I'm the first guy to to, uh, to to talk on and on about that stuff and the power of, of aged meats. But I think less is more. I think you know a few bites of something great is worth more than than say kind of you know a, a commodity beef you know kind of thing on a plate at, at your fancy you know steakhouse. And um, uh, so I like to think of myself as somebody who who kind of amalgamates all these ingredients together and then and then lets them shine um so i don't i try not to over manipulate stuff and so look we don't um uh we don't create restaurants that are about modern cuisine um i think we we really try and avoid um the the um the tasting menu you know side of, of my business i'm fascinated with that and i love it and i pay so much homage to the people who do it and and there there's a, a, a part in my brain that would love to do that again in my career but I really look at the power of a meal as, as the, the, the conversation that happens between people when they sit down over a meal. And, and the, the wine is the, is the lubricant, right? And the, um, and the food is the nourishment. And the conversation is the digestion part of it and, and helping you kind of... Um, have you ever done one of those exercises where you say, you know, like really hateful things in one hand and you say like really nice things in the other hand and you feel like which one weighs more? It has like, it's like in the, in the Chinese uh, kind of Eastern philosophy and, and has to do with chi. And I think that that um, that plays true as well with a meal. And the power of a meal is are you angry when you eat? Are you happy when you eat? Are you having a good time? Does the food look beautiful to you? Uh, is it colorful? Is it textural? Is it, is it, you know, is it acidic? Is it fun? How does it feel? And how does it make you feel? And um, so our restaurants really focus on that. I think really curating an experience down to remove stress and to, to hopefully um, put forward things that make you feel comfortable. And, and um, um, even though our restaurants are quite small and often quite loud <laughs> intentionally because we play music unabashedly loud, um, the idea is to create conviviality. And, and, um, and so I think the power of a meal is more than just the, the you know, nutritional value that we digest. It's about the the emotions that it that it elicits and and, um, and the power of laughter and the power of, of digestion and the power of nutrition and you know all these different types of things. You know, I, one would argue that a really great meal with great friends yeah. and where you feel good is an incredible thing for your health and well being, regardless yeah. of what you're necessarily eating. Extremely, um, I think uh, sometimes it takes a meal to bring your friends together. You know, um, I think, you know, we used to, in, in a different era, you, you stop by someone's house, you knocked on the door and say, you know, hey, how you yeah. doing? <laughs> Can I come in and have a cup of tea or have a cup of coffee, you know, with you? And people don't do that as much anymore, particularly in the modern world of with cell phones and communication. And, and um, um, I don't know about you, but no one leaves voicemails anymore. You know, for, yeah. for the public out there, if you're calling me and leaving me a voicemail, mom, dad, I just don't, leave, I don't listen to them. You know, like nobody does anymore. And so we've gotten to that point where even a phone call is actually a nuisance. And so... The, um, the idea of being able to sit down face to face and talk about stuff um, would probably solve a lot of world problems if we did a little <laughs> bit more of that. 
So something else that's a focal point for you and all of your restaurants, vegetables. So I'm obsessed with, uh, yeah. with it. Yeah, I really am. Um, I, you know, I think it goes back to my childhood and we always had vegetables on the table and mostly because in the Midwest, I think particularly at that time, you know, fish was terrible. Um, meat was expensive. We, we were, sure. we were a large family. Um, my dad was definitely a kind of a meat and potatoes kind of guy. And so we sure we would have cheeseburgers or, you know, hot dogs or sausages, or those kind of things on the grill on a weekend. But but during the week, we had a budget, and, and my mom was amazing at, at putting all that together and, and still feeding us. And so how do you fill up kids um, when you can't afford uh, a whole lot of meat? Well, you give them a lot of starch and vegetables, you know, along the way. And so um, I think that was part of the impetus of having the garden was to, was to teach us a lesson. You know, they, they probably didn't even set out to do that, no, but, it, but it was that way. And, uh, and then to fill up the table with, with salad and, and, you know, even if it was to steam vegetables and whatnot, my mom... Um, God bless her. wasn't it wasn't an amazing cook with vegetables, but but we didn't know any better back then. I think they, everything was either boiled or or kind of sautéed together with with ground beef or you know whatever it was back then. Um, so I think that that as I took that personal journey to kind of discover my 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 mother's parents' farm and um, and kind of figure out where she had come from, um, the vegetable end of that became very um, important to me, and so. As I kind of played that forward to to um, uh, the organic farm I had in Colorado um, called Rendezvous Farm, um, we grew all heirloom Italian vegetables on it, and and that wasn't available at, at any point during my time there in Colorado. Um, all of the food was was kind of trucked over and was very you know ubiquitous kind of stuff, and and I felt like uh, great. Let's let's really start doing some research on it. So I, so I, my my knowledge in the vegetable world ran deep. Uh, as I came into New York City and, and, and looked at opening Charlie Bird, our first restaurant. Um, and, uh, and that was what I craved. Um, so some of my favorite meals with my wife early on um, were definitely just seven or eight different types of vegetables that were prepared and put on the table. And, and she was vegetarian at the time, and, but you, it wasn't about that. It was about um, just eating foods that made you feel good and tasted great. Um, and the steak could be great, could not be great, but the vegetables were always great. And th- that really was powerful. So what are some of your favorite vegetables to play with right now? Well, this time of the year, it's, um, it's uh, dare I say, it's, it's winter. <laughs> We've yes, fallen into the... It. Yes, unfortunately. It's better now than it'll be in February, I'll say that. <laughs> but, um, uh, but it's a great time of the year. I love it. Um, uh, I, I have to say late fall and the early winter are my favorite time to cook. Um, I, I live for summer and sunshine, but I really love to cook in the fall and winter. Um, so, you know, it's, it's obvious. I mean, I think you, you're, you've moved now into the root vegetable season. Um, you're, you're, you're definitely into the, to the, um, um, I always get this word wrong, carciferous, uh, Cruciferous, stuff. Cruciferous, yeah. thank you. Yeah. Um, the cauliflowers and the broccolis and those types of things, which I, which I really love. Um, they're kind of stinky vegetables, but I really love them. Um, and then kind of blending in some of the, the nuts and, and whatnot that's coming out of harvest. Um, by the way, People forget that there's actual seasons, not just to vegetables, but to a lot of things like coffee and nuts and, and olive oil. So they just kind of assume that this stuff's on the shelf all year round. <clears throat> so understanding that, hey, that's the hazelnut harvest is happening right now. You know, we're just got in our fresh hazelnuts or we just oh, got really? in the almonds or, you know, those types of things. That those, when I say what grows together, goes together. Or when, you know, what's really in season is I'm curating some of those, you know, pieces put together to um, say this is at its its peak of, of harvest it's at its peak of freshness it's not oxidized in any way shape or form eat it now and so um, so it goes beyond just the vegetable I think there's more you know 
to talk about in, in that world. So you're going to make everyone listening a pro cook for the holidays. Yeah, at the exactly. Moment. Like what, what's your, what in terms of a, a nut and a vegetable, what does grow and grow together right now? Which, so someone can pair that at home with ever which I way. It. I have a pro tip pro I learned tip. from Chef Ryan. Hardy. <laughs> I, you know, what's become more readily available, which was something that we, <clears throat> we grew a little bit of, um, on the farm in Colorado and it was such a short season. We didn't have great luck with it, but, but I, I started to look around the world when I was there and say, okay, what are some climates that are near where we grow? You know, kind of high mountain, desert, um, you know, short season, you know, type of stuff. And if you look at northern Italy, it, it's pretty good. It's, it's kind of similar. The desert quality isn't quite there. They're pretty, they're pretty flush. But, um, but if you look at some of the kind of temperature ranges, you can do that. So radicchios and all the different types of radicchios were really important to me. And, and it used to be you could buy one radicchio, right? You could buy Treviso in the store, and that was pretty much it. Um, and now when you go to some of the you know nicer markets, particularly in here in New York City, you can find um, Tardivo, you can find Casafranco, you can find you know different types, four, five, six different types of radiculates out there. And I think um, uh, that's a vegetable that I love to cook with, whether you roast it in a saute pan, roast it in the oven, eat it raw, um, you can do a lot with it. You can roast a piece of pork and toss it in there with it and you know those types of things. People think of it as a salad green, but it actually is something that's so much more than that. And, and, okay, so you've taken a trip now all the way to Venezia Friuli. What else is, uh, is, is in there? And, um, well, hazelnuts grow pretty well there. Um, truffles grow pretty well there. Um, olives certainly are, are one of the harvest uh, points there. Um, there. There's a lot. And, and then um, when you start thinking about this, the, the citrus season, of course, is all the way from the south of Italy in this particular case or North Africa or, you know, wherever you choose to be. Um, some of those things tend to go really well together. And I think that, um, uh, well, you're, you're kind of putting two different cultures together at that time. There's, there's some of my favorite things to kind of combine. So I don't know. I love it. Good, so, yeah. so radicchio, maybe olives, a little citrus, hazelnuts, yeah, and maybe perfect. a little olive oil on top, Done. throw it in the oven. All good. I, I, exactly. That's awesome, guys. You got it. <laughs> Blow away your family for the holidays. You heard it here first. So your industry, the restaurant industry, is is one that's, I think it's changing, but for yeah. years was notoriously uh, unhealthy. Yeah, and and physically and also mentally. Yeah. So, how do you stay fit, physically and mentally, your your well being in an yeah. industry where that's hard? Well, I think there's a lot of, of sides of of, uh, of of all industries that have really taken a lot of abuse recently, but but particularly in in the hospitality world, um, um, there's been I think a lot of um, wellness is a great word. I know it's like the word of the, the probably the next decade, so, yeah. right? And, we say uh, well-being now. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Wellness Sorry. is Sorry. like, yeah. No, no, that's just it's us. Passe. That was 2018. Well, it's yeah. like, yeah. It's, 20, it's 2020 now. <laughs> but, but yeah. Um, but I think that has to do with, with culture. I think that, that creating um, work culture in the kitchens, work culture in the, the restaurants in general. Um, you know, it's, it's actually interesting. When you get stars... Um, in Europe, uh, for if you get like uh, um, uh, mobile stars or Michelin, or Michelin stars, yeah. or those types of things, they grade the the entire the experience not only for the guest but also if you're a hotel, all of the quarters for the back of house employees, the laundry, housekeeping, chefs, etc., are all graded as part of that. And so if they're not up to speed and and they're not beautiful and well maintained and taken care of, you can't get five stars in in a place like Europe. And um, so I think one of the things that we work on really hard in, in, in our um, 
uh, restaurant group is the culture of the teams and make sure that people are well taken care of. Um, you know, we, we try and be successful in that all the time. You know, you, you shoot for 100% and, you know, hopefully hit that. Um, so there's, there's definitely stories out there that, um, uh, you know, people maybe didn't feel that way. But, but, I, but I, I really push for it every single day in terms of how are they treated? Um, what does it mean to, to come into work? And, and what's your stress level like while you're at work? What does that, what does that mean? And I think that so many of the of the things that you're alluding to, you know, say alcoholism or drug abuse or or, or just malnutrition and types of things like that, whether you don't eat any food at all or whether you eat too much food, as part of our industry and, and has plagued the industry for the past I don't know, a couple hundred years, is um, can be solved by taking care of the the head and the heart first, and and understanding that if people feel good, if they feel motivated, if they feel you know not too stressed out, um, they will perform better. First of all, they will take care of themselves better, and they won't turn to other things to try and get to that. Um, and that's tough, you know. It's a it's a very stressful industry, and uh, and there are times where where you know you you really need to take a step back from it and and you know go walk in the walk in or or you know to walk outside or you know whatever it is. But but I think that's the first part, and you know the second part is find balance in there somewhere. You know, for me, I I, um, I developed a love for running a number of years ago, and. I wasn't a natural runner. I didn't do it as a kid. Um, I did it, I think, at a, at a point in my life where I didn't have any money, and this was something I could do to it's exercise, free. and it's free. And and um, doesn't really matter the quality of your shoes. You can you can still do it. And so, I really got into it when I lived in Colorado and did a lot of trail running and signed up for a bunch of races and those types of things. And I found that just having an aside, just having a hobby, having something that that pushed me physically, mentally, emotionally in a different way gave me a really nice balance and, at work. And so whenever I get a little too stressed out in my current job, I say, it's time for a run. <laughs> you need to go out and figure it out. So it kind of helps my mental being. So I'm curious, do you have any chefs out there mm. you look to for inspiration or you think you're doing interesting things right now? Oh, man, there's so many. I mean, it's I, I'm, I'm so impressed with what people come up with and, and what they're, what they're work on. I mean, it's a, you know, it's, 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 it's almost too difficult of a question to answer. We, we, I, I happen to, of course, the, the big names like Renee Rizepi and people like that. I, I happen to have a meal, um, with, uh, my partner Grant and, and uh, a few of our other colleagues in Mexico. We were able to eat at Noah, Mexico, and, and I happen to love Mexico and you know, next to Italy, it's my next favorite, um, destination to travel to. And so that was an, an amazing meal, and, and what he went through to, to perform that, pull that off, and, and do it was just just incredible. And so they're, they're, those types of people are moving the world with with cuisine. Um, and on a small end, uh, you know, my wife and I just went for the olive oil harvest in in, uh, in Italy, and we were we just were in Puglia for just thirty six hours, and we were able to stay at a, at a little place um, called Masseria Morissetto, and. Um, and the chef there was a chef partner. It was just blew me away. And all we had was breakfast, and it just blew me away. I was like, "This is so <laughs> amazingly good." And so I started following her. It's like, "What are you doing? Like, what are you working on?" And you know, and stuff like that. And so here's somebody who lives in the middle of the countryside, isn't trying to 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 be you know Renee and and you know discover all these you know crazy shellfish and algaes and you know lichen and all those types of stuff. She's using the stuff that's all around her, but but making art. And, and doing it in a, in, a, in a somewhat modern way in a very peasant side uh, of the world in Puglia, Italy. And so I, I think both ends of the spectrum to me are, are, that's where my head goes, right? You read about kind of the, the, the more high-end spectrum sure. and, and what you really crave is actually the, the other end of the spectrum. It's funny, I, there was a book, you, when you said that, it reminded me of uh, 
was written years ago called Last Supper. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. It was a coffee table yeah, book, and yeah. it was a profile of all these chefs. And yeah. the question was, if your Last Supper, yeah. what are you going to eat? Yeah. Who's going to be there? Would, the, would there be music, <laughs> wine, and so forth? And I was amazed. I loved the book because I was right. amazed that so many of the chefs were just simple. It was like great bread and great Bordeaux. Ugh. Or like Wiley Dufresne was like grilled cheese. Like a guy who's known yeah. for being so right. eccentric. He wanted like a like a hamburger with cheese. <laughs> like it was so simple. And, yeah. But the, the consistent thing I found, I remember, yeah. was like everyone wanted a great like red. Right. That was like the one so thing. Funny. That's great. And there I love was that. like a lot of Grateful Dead in there for music. Yeah. And, and <laughs> I was like, I, I love the book. I was like, yeah. it was so interesting. That's fantastic. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, in three cities you mentioned, so San Francisco you mentioned, you briefly mentioned LA and, and Austin yeah. as other cities. Like I'm curious in those three cities, are there restaurants you think are interesting and people should maybe check out or? I'm terrible at this. I have to tell you, I really am. <laughs> I, 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 it's, it's funny, I, I, I like to do research and then I have to like keep it on my phone and then, and then you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, keep it coming and going. It's so <laughs> difficult for me to, uh, to put together. Um, you know, the, I think the food scenes in those those cities are changing so dramatically and so so quickly. Um, I had a really great meal in San Francisco, and, and it's it's very. I think it should be heralded. Corey Lee is an unbelievable chef. He, of course, he was the very famous chef at the French Laundry. I think he's an incredibly talented um, young man, um, and he has a his 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 restaurants are well very well known and established. But the one that I think is really interesting is um, called in situ and it's in the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco and um, it's very difficult to do a restaurant in a museum and, and I have to say two of my favorite restaurants uh, are in museums on both coasts here in, in New York City is um, um, Ignacio Matos uh, restaurant of course um, called um, uh, what museum it's in the. Uh, you're gonna have to cut this out and then, like you know, put it back together again. Oh, all good. <laughs> it's in the um, Guggenheim. Okay. And it is called. I can see the the uh, the. Uh, That's good. Title. People know. They can it Google out. it. Yeah. Gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting that. Sorry, Ignacio. Um, I just ate there the other day. It's fantastic. I just love it. So I've eaten there. I don't know four or five times. I'd love it. And and it's it's partly because of where it's located. And Institute is the same way. And Institute is an interesting one because Corey Lee decided, look, you've got all these works of these geniuses hanging around this museum. How can't, how can we kind of translate that into food? And so he said, well, why don't we look at some of the culinary geniuses around the world throughout history and what they've done, and let's recreate that dish. And, and let's put a very modern twist on it, because it is a museum of modern you know, art. And how do we um, put that? For, it's called Flora Bar, by the way, Ignacio. Okay. I, I did know it, Ignacio, and I loved it. Um, uh, and, and how do you how do you bring that forward? And so, institute really from the graphic design and the experience there, et cetera. I was just so, wow. And it's a cafe. It's not it's not a serious like sit down. You're you're sitting for a tasting menu, you know, kind of thing. Sure. But it's done by a chef that, you know, arguably has has some of the best chops in our whole country. Is one of the great chefs in our country. So I thought that was great. Um, really, really super. I have a I have a chef question. Yeah. So is it a new thing, or I'm just new to this, where chefs are collaborating together and partnering on restaurants? <laughs> Somebody asked me recently in an article, like, "What's next for for your industry?" And I said, "Collaborations." Because two yeah. of my favorite restaurants, there, my wife Colleen and I went to Onda yeah. in L.A. Right. recently, and then that, in yeah. Austin we went to Loro. Oh right, yeah, great. And like two, yeah. you know, big both both instances like big name chefs yeah. collaborating. So I was curious, like, is this a new thing or I'm just n new to this or, <laughs> or, or, 
No, I, th- I think it's a fairly new thing. I think uh, you could tie it back, I'm sure, for a long, long time. I think Rene Rezepi did a really good job of, of doing a lot of collaborations. And, and um, I think it started, for me anyway, it started with um, something called Raw. They, they held in, in Italy the first time, which was a, 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 a consortium, if you will, that kind of brought chefs together to talk about the state of the world and food and and so there, there was an invite only i was yeah. not not invited um but um but it became kind of a thing in our industry and it probably happened i don't know 10 or 12 years ago and suddenly those those people got together and they found they had a lot of um uh things in common across different cultures and whatnot so they they started to invite people to come and cook in their kitchens and so although i think it's been done for many you know decades prior to that for me, it became much more prevalent since 2005, 2006, um, maybe even 2010, maybe in the last decade, it's really become much more prevalent. Yeah. So you see, um, um, you know, Michelin-starred chefs coming over and doing kind of fun, just dinners first. And then I think that got taken to the next level and said, hey, I want to do a restaurant. I'm, I'm really good at making pizza, and you're really good at, at uh, doing, you know, some of these other things. Why don't we come together and let's, let's do a little project together? And the, you know the power of, of marketing behind that's pretty strong, obviously, and um, and I think it's not too dissimilar to what the art world did, you know, a long time ago with Basquiat Warhol and you know some of the great collaborations that happened over time. Is um, you know it obviously happens in the music world a lot, sure. and um, and I think that that in the food world we're finally I think people are letting go of that ego a little bit, sure. and and the, and the culture of the of the industry has changed quite a bit. And, you know, it used to be very much about you and yourself and, and the kind of the ego of the meal. And I think it's changed so much now to just be like, everything's out there, man. Like, you know, you, it's all on Instagram. It's all yeah. on Google. It's all, you know, there's YouTube videos of, of everything out there. There's podcasts out there of how to make all this stuff. And so I think it finally got to a point where um, you can't hide stuff anymore. In fact, you want to give it away. And, right. and I think that um, uh, being able to do that with other chefs and, and, and do it in a way that is that is artistic, or it's just fun, or it's great business, or, or you know, or et cetera, is a great way to create other um, uh, you know friends in the industry and, and uh, you know develop, I think, m- new customers. Any other trends you think are interesting right now in, in the restaurant world? Well, I think well-being, to update yes. the word, uh, <laughs> is, a, is a big deal. You know, I think somebody who really blew me away. Um, I had this experience. Uh, I started um, uh, dating my now wife, um, Agatha, and I wasn't living in um, New York City <clears throat> quite yet. And um, um, I came to the city to do some work, and uh, we were going to have dinner together. And um, we went to ABC Kitchen. Sure. When it first opened. Dan Kluger. Yeah, Dan, good real good friend of mine. Love his new place, Loring Place. And um, I really... I, here I came from Colorado, owned a farm, was really doing some really cool stuff in this little hotel out there. I thought um, was making cheese. I was hanging prosciuttos. Was really I was doing you know we were raising pigs and we were raising. We had a thousand egg laying hens on the ground, so our pasta program was all about these egg laying hens. I mean, it was really like really forward thinking stuff at the time. And um, we didn't have uh, you know the blank check to write you know for for stone barns the way that uh dan barber and all those guys did it was just an unbelievable uh thing that they were doing and uh so i went in and i was like oh okay here we go here's jean George, um you know guy who i'm i'm just really think the world of but oh he created a farm to table restaurant wow this is going to be interesting you know kind of thing and and i admit i was i was a little skeptical walking in and and uh, we sit down and and um the first person walks over the table to pour water 
was a guy that had just resigned from my restaurant in Colorado and had just moved to New York City, and this was his first day on the job. I said, you've got to be kidding me. This is how small the industry is. And, um, and we had an unbelievable meal, an unbelievable meal. I mean, really fantastic. And so I, I, that go, you asked me about you know, trends, and, and I said well-being, and I think that that, that was a meal also that, that I go back to and say, wow, that was, that was great. And, and it clicked with so much of what I love, which was this kind of high acid vegetable raw, it was a lot of raw fish and a lot of you know, vegetable-based stuff that really made sense to me. And you looked around the room and it was like, wow, it's beautiful in here, it's beautiful people in here and people who are really happy and joyous. And I was, I was really moved by that. So I think that trend continues. I think, I think Jean-Georges was, was a guy who saw what other people maybe were doing and then made it better. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Dan is a big part of that, obviously. And then um, uh, I see that kind of continuing, you know, through. I think that modern cuisine in its in its forms will always be there, and and I love to search out those restaurants and travel to those little points of the world, and and have these incredible three star Michelin restaurant, you know, kind of experiences. I find them fascinating, but the meal I have the day before or the day after is often more interesting than than sure. those uh, than those meals in terms of the nourishment and the conviviality of it all. Um, but you wouldn't be there if you didn't go fly to that particular spot. So I think those will always exist. But I think what we will see is is more and more people that are really focusing on community-driven um, um, type establishments that are well-curated and uh, and are serving really high-quality ingredients first. And if the, the power of um, these big uh, food production, you know, kind of monocropping companies has been beaten up just a little bit. They're still making a ton of money. <laughs> they're, not, no, they're not worried about us. But you're seeing the power, I think, of, of local food markets really taking over. And so even places like very near here, you know, you know food markets that are opening you know, here in Brooklyn um, are, are powerful. And it's, it's changed. I think you would probably agree that in the last 15 years, the way you buy food in New York City is dramatically different sure. than it was prior. You, know, you had to go to Whole Foods if yeah. you wanted well, to buy Now there's a lot of them. Now, now yeah. I, I say, exactly. like, look... If well-being is not here, yeah. guys, Amazon acquired Whole Foods Market a couple yeah. of years ago. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. not a sign of, of, <laughs> of the times. Exactly. Yeah, completely. So I, I see that as a trend that will continue. I, th- I think the, the wine world is really changing as well. I mean, it's something that we focus on a lot in our restaurants. You're really starting to see young winemakers getting back into the industry that was usually dominated by mostly older men that were you know, primarily in... in um, nutrient-rich countries, you know, the United States, France, Italy, Spain, Australia, you know, kind of the, the more dominant uh, wine-producing countries. And now I think you're starting to see a little bit more of the youth taking um, stock in that and, and producing wines in, in interesting areas of the world, the Canary Islands or, or you know, Slovenia and, you know, places like this that are that are borderline. There's nothing wrong with the economy. There's nothing wrong with the... the, um, uh, the, the um, the weather in those regions that's going to produce great stuff. I'm, I'm speaking out of my, my territory here, but but I think that you're starting to see stuff that's affordable, it's delicious, um, it's, it's often can be natural, organic in those types of ways. And and I think that um, although we don't we don't have a wine list that's, that's exclusive to that type of stuff, my partner Grant and and, um, and my other partner Robert and all the people that we kind of have that work in the wine were with us. I think that's a big part of the meal. And so you, you, it used to be even as as early as when we opened Charlie Bird, there were there were several great wine restaurants in New York City. There were not a lot of great casual wine restaurants in New York City, and that's really where our niche fit in. And now it's not just New York City, man. You can drink well in 
Austin, you can drink well in St. Louis, you can drink well in Seattle, you can drink well in you know all these different places, and, and that was didn't exist 20 years ago. You mentioned wines. I have to ask any favorite you know producers with a natural slant that you know in an effort to make everyone listening a, a better entertainer for the holidays. <laughs> this is really a question for. We have a, a wine store called Parcel as well. And Christine, who runs their wine store, is just amazing. Um, and my partner Grant, who really runs that with her, this is this is definitely in their uh, ballpark. Um, but I, I think you know it's it's interesting. I won't go into the world because once again, I'm speaking out of out of my comfort zone. But but I do think that um, uh, the the idea there there are lots of great producers that don't necessarily you wouldn't think of as natural um, wines because that's just the way the wine is made in that particular region, uh, particularly in places like Burgundy or or in parts of France that that they, they do biodynamic farming. Yes, because that's the way they've been doing it for a long time. If they're a great producer, that's the way it happens. Um, so um, there are some some people in there that I just love. I mean, um, Jean Louis Chav is a guy who we would just like bow down for and love um sorry what uh, was that name jean-louis chav is a, Jean-Louis, a guy okay. we really love and and um dujac um is a you know, jeremy is a really really great friend of ours and um uh, and the family there is just unbelievable and in italy I, I really love um a good friend of ours in the north actually speaking of radicchio and hazelnuts is um uh, right on the italian slovenian border um is uh Giampaolo vinica I think it's great, really um, delicious wines, affordable wines, um, uh, amazing white wines that are made uh, up there. Roberto Conterno, of course, is, the, is kind of the greatest winemaker in, in Italy, I think. And um, he does a couple of other projects um, that I think are really super that are also affordable and, and, and make stuff that's just great. That's really minimal kind of um, uh, production that goes into making some of those wines. Just great stuff. So to close off the most amazing vegetable-forward holiday meal... I have to ask about, you mentioned olive oil. Do you have yeah. any favorites? You know, I, I, I do. I'm obs- Oh man. I, I use that word obsessed a little too much, I think, but, but, uh, I really am when it comes to olive oil. And, and, um, I think, um, I use more olive oil from the DiCarlo family in, um, uh, in Puglia than I do just about any other olive oil. Um, DiCarlo is something you can you can buy it online. There's only a couple of importers. We import some uh, directly for ourselves. And there's another friend of mine, Steve Lewis, who runs uh, an importing company called Juliana Imports. Um, he has a website you can buy retail from him as well. Um, that uh, that do a really great job of, of importing some olive oils and bringing them in. There's there's a few new websites now where you can buy retail stuff. Most of the stuff that we see on the grocery stores, most of it's garbage, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, and there's a number of reasons for that. I mean, um, olive oil is, is very. Um, I don't want to go and make a huge diatribe on this, but olive oil is, is full of something called polyphenols. And, and sure. those are, and, yeah. you know all about them, right? Um, and the, the level of those polyphenols is that it's highest when it's harvested. And then it quickly drops down, you know, in, in 30 days, it's going to be different. And 90 days, it's going to be very different. And 180 days, it's, it's, it's almost a shadow of what it was when it was fully harvested. And so although olive oil has put a two year stamp on the, on the back of their olive oil, um, you need to understand that the closer you are to harvest, the better your flavor. You gotta gulp that health, bottle down. Gotta gulp it. And so <laughs> I always say uh, when selecting olive oil, whether you can find a Carlo or, or any of these great olive oils or not, um, go uh, to a great food retailer, look at the at the date on it. It'll whatever date it says, if it says used by, if it says, you know, used by twenty twenty, well that was harvested in two thousand eighteen. So now you're two at the year, end of, So there's a two year shelf life. Exactly. So it's always close to twenty four months. That yeah. is a huge pro tip, guys. Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. I so, like I always look for shelf life, but for right. that, it really is meaningful with two years, that's what they're allowed to put on it. Yeah. Wow. So you yeah. want you want in a perfect world like twenty three months left on shelf life. Correct. And this is the time of year to buy it. All the new oils are just starting to show up right now. And, 
and, and, and like I said, I think I said earlier, um, people forget that olive oil is comes from a vegetable. You know, I mean, it's a it's a fruit technically, and um, um, in fact, it's the only. This is kind of interesting. It's the only oil that's pressed directly from the flesh of a fruit. We make oils out of seeds and lots of other things, right? Safflower or almond or, you know, whatever. Hazelnut oils, all those types of things. But it's the only one, and it's not manipulated. We don't have to, to extract it from the seed. We don't have to do anything to it. Um, it's just pressed. That's it. It's pressed. Take it out. Run it through a centrifuge. Take out some of the moisture. And, and what you're left with is this incredibly healthy product that um, is, is 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 really great. I love it. We yeah. love olive oil here at My Buddy Green. <laughs> I'm going to send you some good stuff for the holidays. I'm in. I'm, I'm in. I can't give you my address fast enough. Um, so last question. Any advice for entrepreneurs mm. out there or trying to make it? Yeah, um, gosh, where do you begin? Um, look, I think be true to yourself is, is maybe the, the easiest. And, and that's, I don't want to sound like I'm copping out on that because talk for ad nauseum about that but but I think be true to yourself have a mission understand what that is and then make your decisions to that mission and and that's really important so if you're if you're a restaurant um, stay focused on what it is at hand if you're gonna you know for our restaurants we, we serve um, we're really wine centric restaurants we serve mostly wines from France and Italy and you know a few kind of outliers um, the cuisine is mostly Mediterranean based so we're not going to put on a ramen dish from Japan even though we might be influenced by it we're gonna kind of stay focused to what we are and for those people who are entrepreneurs, maybe in different areas, whether you're, let's say, um, a fashion designer or you're, um, um, I don't know, a, a coach, or, you know, a health coach or, or something like that, um, stay true to your brand. You know, what is your brand and understanding what that is and, and everything should speak to that brand. Um, I got some really good advice and it's, I think it's something that we, um, I was just telling this to my wife the other day and it's, it's I think it's, it's, it's interesting and kind of worth repeating. I heard this, um. From a, from a podcast that I really love to listen to. His name's Bob Pittman, and sure. a very famous guy. He runs a couple of podcasts, and I saw him speak recently, and he, he kind of gave a little soliloquy, which I thought was really interesting. And, and um, one of the guests on his show spoke, and, and, um, and he talked about um, the, the rule of 20-60-20. And 20% um, of it, I believe this applies to a lot, but 20% of the things that we think, you know, the ideas that we have are successful. And, and they're home runs. They're just, they're hits, right? And whether you're, whether you're doing sales, whether you're a chef, you know, and those are your dishes, whether it's your restaurant and those types of things, you know, like whatever that is, 20% of your, your product is, is going to be great. 20% of it's going to be bad right off the bat. And you know, it's not a great idea. Like you're going to try it, you're going to tweak with it, you know, et cetera. But, but you kind of know it's not great. And the 60% is everything else that falls in between that will sink you as an entrepreneur. And, <laughs> and you have to get it into one of those other 20s right away. And, and I think and Ben Lair was the guy who was speaking about this on a podcast. And, and I was really, I was like, oh yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard it a couple of times, but, but I just recently heard it. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I kind of forgot about that. And that's, that's really interesting. And so um, getting those things out of that 60% category, because mediocrity is terrible. And, and we don't want, I don't want a mediocre meal. I don't want to, I don't want a mediocre run. <laughs> I want, I want to do things well. And I think that in this day and age where um, time is of the essence, I think we're, we're all in that category. And so get things into the 20s, maybe is a better way to say it. I love it. <laughs> Ryan, thanks so much. Absolutely. Great to be here. Thanks for having thanks, me. Guys.